This device isn't a spaceship. It's a time machine. Goes backwards, forwards. Takes us to a place where we ache to go again. It's not called the wheel. It's called the carousel. We're trying the carousel as a trying the carousel as a as a live stream that will also be later uh, used as a. Also, be later posted as a podcast. We're just going to give it a shot. Hack. Awesome. Hawk. Okay, uh, cool. Yeah, nice. All right. Well, hey, welcome to the carousel, Alex Garner. It's good to be here with you, Isaac. I, you know, we've been talking now for a couple of months, and you've been a supporter behind the scenes of what I'm trying to build with this tribe of men. You know, you linked me up with David at Hestia, which is awesome. And so I just appreciate all the support, um, you know, in the relationship here over the last few months. <clears throat> Absolutely, man. I mean, it was great to discover you. I, I forgot exactly how I found you. Um, but yeah, tons of alignment. I mean, a lot of people uh, are familiar with you and, and talk about you. So you have a Twitter account called Lead Pacer. Yeah. Um, and you also have a group that you're calling a tribe. Um, and I know we want to talk about tribalism a little bit here and, and what exactly that means, but um, maybe we can start with, I think uh, we both kind of have some agreements with being a little bit tired and uh, exhausted with, with right-wing Twitter. So maybe we can start with that. Yeah. You've said uh, right-wing Twitter is being a bunch of do-nothing harbors. Yeah. Which yeah. I think is a funny thing. So maybe we start with, start with that. Yeah, well, I think there's been an evolution right wing Twitter, too, where you had, you know, when Trump first emerged in 2015, 2016, you had people like Mike Cernovich, Milo Yiannopoulos, Gavin McInnes. Um, you had a really interesting, you know, motley crew of guys that, um, you know, were really, you know, they were prolific on Twitter, present on Twitter. And so and it was a fun, irreverent time. I mean, that's part of it. It was a lot of, you know, it was kind of lighthearted, like poking fun at people. And that was part of the Trump experience back in you know, 2016. And I think those guys were really kind of thought leaders in jumping on board. And, you know, since then, a lot of them have left the, you know, the Trump train and moved on to other stuff. But a lot of them are still there. But um, I think there's been with all of the deplatforming and shadow banning and just the changes of Twitter in general, a different kind of you know, kind of the Anon poster has emerged. And I understand why a lot of people do that, because. You know, a lot of people out there have to make a living and put bread on the table for a family. And if you're dropping hot takes on Twitter and your employer catches wind of it, you're you're done, you know, and then you've got to go on a completely different path. Your life trajectory just changed. And so I understand, um, you know, why people do that. But at the same time, I think it's really good to put a face and a name out there because it tempers a lot of the things that you have to say. Now, I say this as somebody that's you know, just turned 40 years old. So, you know, I'm a little bit different, you know, in terms of the world I grew up in 
than a guy that's maybe in his mid twenties and he's been on social media, you know, since he was in his early teens and he's kind of living in this screen world and his socialization skills are very different than mine because I kind of feel like, you know, these older millennials, you know, Gen Xers, even people kind of in the middle, you know, millennial generation were able to glean a lot of learnings from like the boomer generation in terms of, you know, mentorship and coaching and, you know, how to comport yourselves in a professional environment. And I think there seems to be some kind of um, a different kind of socialization with people that are under the age of, let's say, 27, 28. And I think that Twitter has really kind of been the people that have survived all of the, the platforming um, and come, you know, some cases they've been banned and come back many different times. Um, and in other cases, they've been able to build substantial accounts. It's just an entirely different kind of person focused on different stuff. And the thing for me is, while I've learned a lot, you know, from some of these guys, I also think there's, there's a lot of repetition. And if you really want to, and I think you need to understand like the context here, like memes are fun. It's great to have guys in a group chat that you have commonality with. But if you want to change something in a fundamental way, you do have to go build from scratch. Like that's where we're at right now. Like all of the valuable institutions are basically spoken for. You know, they've been co-opted by the left or their allies, you know, on the right that are kind of working hand in glove with them. But you really are going to have to build something from the ground up. And I believe that tribes is really the way to do it. Now, it's, that's very difficult to do um, because I think that we've, that's really a, the old way. Like that's the way things have been done since the beginning of, you know, time immemorial are, you know, tight knit tribes, oftentimes ethno-religious groups, um, you know, that people are born into. And that's really how people survive and in, in some cases thrive, right? But I think that we've really gotten away from that and people kind of look at themselves as an individual economic unit that has to go out and look out for themselves and they're not, there's really nothing to fall back on. And so I think there's been like this atomization that's taken place where the whole concept of tribes can be foreign to a lot of people. And what tribes to me is, is about, it's a brotherhood of sorts. It's people that you're meeting with in person regularly. You know, and it's not just being online and having online friends. And I know some people have been able to make that transition and actually meet in person. But if you're not meeting in person, it's very hard to evaluate somebody's character and what they bring to the table. Right. And I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, there's a lot of, you know, scamming and misdirection and things that go on on Twitter are that, you know, people are really good at knowing what to say. And they can do it in a digital format where they're not going to really get checked person to person, you know, and I can, and, and it's difficult to know, you know, and what you really have to do is get face to face with somebody and men know how to, you know, men have a way of measuring each other. And when you get face to face with somebody, there's all kinds of things you're going to pick up on regarding body language, you know, facial gesticulations hand movements, um, just somebody's general energy that they're putting out there. You can kind of get, you know, their eyes, where are their eyes going. You can start to take note of that and get an idea of like what, who this person is, and you know, what are their life experiences, um, and that's really how men relate. And I think we've got to get back to that, and that's what I've been focused on building with this tribe. Uh, we just had our first meetup in Miami, you know, two or three weeks ago, and we were able to get something like 17, 18 guys that 
either some of them were based in South Florida um, or some actually we had one guy fly in from the West Coast, from Tijuana, Mexico. Um, we had guys coming from Salt Lake City, uh, from North Carolina, really all over the place. And it was a collection of guys that all kind of had this, you know, base understanding of the world and realize that we're, it looks like we're in a post-political reality in America, at least from a like national electoral politics standpoint, and that we need to start thinking differently and form these associations. Um, because not just because it's fun, but because it'll be entirely necessary at a certain point. And so I've been kind of preaching this gospel over the last, I don't know, probably six months to a year, you know, and in building this group and trying to, I feel like this is really a lifeboat and I'm trying to grab other people that they see what I'm, you know, tweeting and they're like, okay, this resonates with me. I get it. And I think maybe this guy can be somebody that I'm associated with. And I like the other people that are in this group. And you know, we've we've got a group of about 50 guys so far and our retainment's pretty high um, in most cases when some you know people stick. But when someone you know, wants to head for the exits, it's really the right decision because they're just not this isn't the right environment for them. Or maybe they're just not tribal material, which I think is the case with a lot of folks is that they want to um, you know, we're not looking to recreate Twitter. You know, this isn't like a private Twitter. And that's something that I've been, um, you know a very intentional and cultivating environment where we're talking about things that aren't going to play well on Twitter or just the dynamics of the conversation don't fit within the format of Twitter. So that's a very long-winded answer to your original question. <laughs> I went all over the place. <clears throat> so do you think yeah. in another time you would have been like a, like a Viking Raider type? Like would have you, would have you, cause that's tribe, you know, when you have tribe in your mind, mm -hmm. you think of kind of like uh Indian tribes, raiding societies, basically, I think is what you think of when <clears throat> you say tribes. Do you see yourself in that way? Like in another time, would you have been a, a warrior? I don't know. I mean, I, I think there's a, I think in terms of the word, sometimes people get thrown off of tribe. You could say community. You could say group. I like the word guild. And honestly, we've had different iterations of the name. I mean, we were, the name Base Brotherhood is a name that I have available in terms of the domain. Um, you know, in branded materials. But the word base is just, you know, showed up on an FBI list on, you know, things that far right wing people are using, which in a way makes me say, you know what, to hell with it. You know, like, I'm not going to let that word be co-opted by people that don't really understand it and, and, and vilify anybody that uses it. But at the same time, it's also a potential hazard to people that are members of this. And it's my job as the leader to not put anybody in harm's way. Right. And so we're still kind of sorting through the name. Like, what do we want to run with here? Um, I'm not exactly sure, but I kind of think of it as a guild. And, you know, it doesn't really need to have a game right now. Like, I just, you know, send people to a personal website and they can, you know, read what we're about and kind of get an understanding. And if they're interested, they can sign up for a month or they can sign up for a full year. You know, people that sign up for a year are just more committed across the board. Um, some people financially, they just need to be month to month. But, um, you know, to, to go back to your question, what would I, it's hard to say, like, I'm, I feel like there are great men of certain eras and all of the great men collect in certain industries or, um, occupations, right? Like if you look in the early 1900s, you have like the Gilded Age of the industrialists, the Rockefellers, the Carnegie's, the Vanderbilt's, the Mellons, um, there's some of the big financiers that work with those guys, but those are the people that really 
you know, built a lot of the foundations of modern day America. And, you know, and then you go into the Great Depression and you have FDR is really, you know, the king of America, you know, for a very long period of time and somebody that was able to reshape the country. Um, you know, then we go into World War II and it's really about politicians and generals, you know, that carry us through that time. You know, then we get into, um, you know, JFK and, and the space race. And so we have like astronauts and people that are aviation pioneers like Chuck Yeager. Uh, that's where a lot of the risk taking was and the people that are driving society. Um, then we you know, get into the late 60s and we have the emergence of the artist, you know, Woodstock 69. And we've got, you know, something very different, a countercultural movement that really takes off around that same time we're going to space. And I think that's, you know, Peter Thiel talks about this, that that's really when our aspirations went from like outward and exploring space in the universe to more of like the inward pursuits. And we're kind of stuck there in, in a certain way. Um, and I feel like really since then, we've had the artist era and then the entrepreneur era um, that's really focused on tech, you know, starting with like hardware, software, um, you know, then going into social media, maybe AI is the start of something different. But really the entrepreneur for the last, I think, you know, 30, 40 years, that's been like where a lot of the great men um, where they are. I do think we're undergoing a period right now where there could be a new kind of great man. It's not just the entrepreneur. It could be somebody that's like a cult leader or tribal leader. Um, I think you look at somebody like Trump and Elon Musk. Elon Musk is much more than just a businessman and an entrepreneur. You know, he's a transcendent figure on a global basis. And I think Trump is somebody like that too. Maybe Kanye West, but these are people that can move the Overton window. They can change the dynamics of the conversation, right? Well, I think what's interesting about it, it's a very fascinating point you're making, and I'm, I'm right on board with it, um, that every era is defined by its great men and great men in any given era are kind of drawn to certain things. And I think it's true that our era has been the tech entrepreneur, not just the entrepreneur, but the tech entrepreneur. Yes. It's jobs. Um, you know, uh, Bezos, who I think is actually underrated somehow. Uh, and then, <clears throat> of course, Musk, who you, and I think you're really actually right that Musk, Trump, Kanye kind of represent transitional people like like they're, they're not a pure, you know, Bezos and Jobs are just pure, total, archetypal, you know, tech moguls. Yes. But all three of those guys are really like moving to something else. They, they like they're not <clears throat> it's tough to think of Musk as just a pure mogul. You know, it's true. It's like he really is kind of like something else because he's an activist. You know, I mean, he's really he's an activist as well. And um, I think you're right. You know, we're, we're, earlier on, you said the word post political. What did you mean by post political? I think something happened after the 2020. I think that Trump was got people excited again that are more like on the right or independent minded. He really broke the frame in how politics is supposed to work in America. And this was preceded by Brexit, you know, the year before that was something that was shocking to a lot. It shocked me. I'm like, wow, this is possible. Like these populist movements can actually do something. Like you can, you can change the course of you know, the political trajectory in that country. And then Trump came along and, and he got people excited again. A lot of us, you know, people that had kind of checked out and believing that America was still capable of great things, he brought him back in. And that wasn't supposed to happen. 
you know, and then COVID hit. And I feel like there was a total frequency change, you know, play, you know, across the world, you know, not just in America, but all over the world, probably starting in late 2019, going into 2020. And COVID just kneecapped Trump. It's something he wasn't really prepared for or equipped to deal with. And in his defense, I don't think anybody was. Um, but he did the best he could and he delegated to the wrong people. And then we had, you know, the George Floyd incident and then the BLM riots. And, you know, I was living in Dallas and, you know, seeing a lot of these things happen in terms of this like cultural revolution that's coming along with COVID. And I was like, this is crazy. Like this place doesn't have the same vibes anymore, you know? And, um, I think that carried through all the way to the 2020 election and people thinking that Trump still had a way back to the White House and then realizing whether it was later on that night of November 3rd, 2020, or in the weeks that followed, people realized that the way they thought America worked and the way elections work was not the case. And I think there was a period of mourning that people went through. Go ahead. You're going to ask a question. Do you think that, so that's what you mean by post-political is that the the illusion, the illusion of democracy has been, uh, revealed for, for being an illusion? I think that the way the 2020 election went down with like mail-in voting and seeing what was going on in these half dozen counties and key swing states and a pipe bursting in Georgia in the middle of the night and, you know, ballots showing up out of nowhere in like Wisconsin and people not being able to vote on voting day in Maricopa County in Arizona I think like all of these things just shattered people's reality and that, you know, what's really going on here. And of course, the debate is, is this just, just the growing incompetence of the average American, which is a real issue across the board? And that's actually a hidden form of inflation and that we have to pay higher prices for things like insurance because other people don't know how to drive a car anymore. That's a whole other conversation. But I think that after 2020 election and it was, you know, Biden gets in office The thing for me was I had understood why every American president in my lifetime had been elected. Like, you know, I understood why George W. Bush won. I understood why Obama won. These are more, these were the more charismatic option, you know, of the people that were running, believe it or not. And I understood why Trump won. But when Biden winning and the way that, you know, he was dead to rights, during the Democratic primaries and a deal was done in South Carolina with Jim Clyburn, you know, basically (laughs) handing over the black vote over to uh, Biden and then that really propelling him. And then just all the pins fell down for Biden and the Democratic establishment rallied behind him with like Klobuchar dropping out, Pete Buttigieg. And it just was boom, like the decks were cleared and Biden went on to win. And then when he became president, and you realize how many people truly loathe Trump, like in a visceral way, and, and went out and voted against him. Then you have the voting irregularities, all of this stuff. I think it was just a holy shit moment for a lot of people. And in the, the months that followed the election, for me, like seeing Biden get in office, it's like, well, that's whether it was by hook or by crook, or this is who the American people truly want to be president, it was demoralizing. And so I went through maybe a couple of months of trying to work through that. And then realizing like, hey, you know, maybe we got too, maybe people got too emotionally invested in Trump and what he was going to be able to do. And we need to look within. And then and then about the time this happened, I think, you know, the uh, Bitcoin bull run was in full effect. If you think about back in late 2020, we were printing a ton of money, you know, with from COVID. 
And you started to see crypto really kick into high gear. And this went into 2021. And a lot of people's attention became folks like young people started focusing on crypto. I'm like, let's go make money together. Right. And so that kind of, I think, was a nice thing that happened for a lot of people. Um, and then, you know, everybody's talking about how cryptocurrency is going to, you know, unlock, you know, the future of finance and, you know, decentralized money, which I think then a lot of people have learned is going to be extremely, it's extremely difficult whenever you have sovereign governments that own money um, that don't want any competition with their currencies. Like they're going to put up all kinds of obstacles and hurdles and just trap doors to where that's going to be really, really hard. But I think what I've noticed with my message um, and just people responding to it is that you just can't look to politicians, you know, and, and social media personalities to really do anything for you. Like you need to empower yourself, whether it's, you know, learning additional skills, um, you know, building relationships on the ground level, you know, moving to a place that fits your vibe better, because I think that's a big, that's very important in life is finding um, a place where the energy is going to fit, you know, it's going to allow you to thrive and really take off. And you can't overcome that. A lot of people don't understand this because they're stuck in some place and they want to think that they can kind of grind their way out of it. But it's like, no, I mean, you need to go to a place where you can be around the right people and have the right surroundings to really go out there and make it happen. So I think that something happened a few months after the 2020 election where people just started focusing on making money. Crypto was a part of that. And there was a lot of money available, you know, in, in the financial system and people just started going in a different direction. And now, since we're kind of getting into the 2024 election, I think a lot of people are guarded and taking a measured response to what the Republican Party's chances are of being able to overcome this new system that was used in 2020 to um, you know, put Joe Biden in office. I think people are righteously skeptical that the Republican Party has the intellectual capability or the actual the will you know, to, um, to overcome this, this machine that's been set up. And so I, that's kind of what I'm talking about by post-political. Yeah. Uh, it does seem to me that <clears throat> political solutions are um, – there's a lot more potential in private solutions than there is in public solutions. I mean it's like um, – it's funny because some people defined fascism as when the public sphere and the private sphere mix together. <laughs> and it's funny because like that's literally what's happening. You know, I mean, that that's like more or less, that's kind of the definition of our problem right now is mm -hmm. that on a global level, the public sphere and the private sphere has collapsed into one. And totally. that makes it very difficult to fight because the paradigm is either you have the right mobilized against the public sector or you have the left mo motivated against the private or yeah, private sector. So now they've figured out this end around where they're just mushing together both of the sectors. And I think like, uh, you know, a lot of the reason for the Bud Light thing, a lot of the reason for all this woke marketing is because it's very unclear which is which. And um, <clears throat> it seems to me that fighting that beast, there is still so much more potential to fight it in the public sector, or sorry, 
in the private sector than there is in the public sector. Like you are still allowed to start a business, right? Yeah. You're still allowed to do that. You, you know, you can't build it the way you want to. You're not allowed to have it be got all men. You're, you can't not hire people of any kind. You know, you have to hire whoever they want, blah, blah, blah. But the business itself is still allowed technically to be, be whatever you want it to be. And I think that that's really powerful. And I think that that's ultimately what will allow us to win is building businesses that yep. function. Um, but on the other hand, I think you're right that it's like the moguls of the past, you, you know, the, as you put so well, the um, industrialization era where we had Henry Ford moguls. And then, yeah, it's a, uh, <clears throat> and then um, more recently, we had our, the tech version of that. Um, it's like since our enemies have become mushed, it's almost like we're also going to become mushed. Like we're, we're going to be in fighting them. We're going to also have this kind of weird hybrid. Like it's not going to be like total business. It's going to be like, tribal business basically i mean that's that's really what we're talking about that's what that's what will is my, like my company will it's actually funny you talk about the word based i literally will the tagline for will is based marketing it says that right. on the website it says that on everything and you know i made that like years ago and now the fbi comes out and says you can't use it and i'm like what am i gonna what am i supposed to do here i'm supposed to like not use it because the FBI said so? Like, I mean, give me a fucking break. Like, that's what could be more anti-business than, like, not using a completely innocuous word because the FBI tells me not to. So it's like, of course I'm not going to... I mean, like, I realize it's a risk, but I'm not going to fucking change it. Like, fuck no. Um, Good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, but it's... The thing... Um, there's a couple of things here I want to hit on is... Centralization, as much as people don't like that word, has America is a really interesting country in how power is decentralized in certain ways, which, you know, Curtis Yarvin talks about with the cathedral. But in terms of supply chains and consumer options, it's incredibly centralized. And that has given us an abundance of options that no other country has. When you go into a grocery store on Amazon, like the things like the consumer choices that you have available to you are unprecedented in human history. And so the issue is breaking away from that is entirely necessary if we want to transact together. Like because I believe that you know, money is energy. It's a transfer of energy relating to a perception of value. Right. And so if we want to transact with people that have the same values and believe in the same things we do. You know, that's that's kind of a different model. And we're going to have to find ways to get stuff to people. Um, but it's really out of necessity, because if we're going to use these like centralized platforms or large retailers, they're not going to let us really access the market the same way. And there's not only that, but I think this is something I have not heard anybody else talk about. And I want to say it here is. You know, the era of cheap money is over. There may be a blip where like interest rates go down for a minute because we have to do it, stimulate growth, and then they go up again. But like the, the era of, you know, really in the 90s, um, 
you know, all the way through 2020, you could say 2008 to 2020, you know, in terms of, you know, really changing how, you know, we're printing money. But that was an era where companies had access to capital and were able to go build and scale businesses at very favorable valuation models and be acquired by large companies because everything was so centralized, you know, but they could, you know, like Whole Foods did it, um, you know, in the grocery business, very, you know, very small player, but would allow for a guy off the street to walk in and sell his granola bar or her fresh squeezed juice or some kind of organic facial, whatever it is. Like Whole Foods really changed the game. And then all of a sudden the Kroger's and Walmart's and Target's and Publix's are like, wait, we've got to start thinking like this. And so like you had all these companies that were able to go out and access distribution and go raise money from angel investors. Then there's VCs. And this is, you know, that was a really great era. Um, but now I think it's going to be a lot different. And I think in the era of higher interest rates, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be harder to start up like access capital as a startup and be able to get the kind of margins that you want as commodities are more expensive and be able to go sell the Coca-Cola for a gazillion dollars. I think that era, I'm not saying it's not going to happen because it will happen. I'm saying it's entirely different, you know, route to market now. And also in terms of like celebrity backed brands, like if you want to do like an alcohol product or yeah. really almost anything, this food and beverage, you need to be celebrity back. And it used to be, you could have some guy that was, you know, making granola bars in his oven with his dad. I actually know a guy that did this in Austin and he was able to, he sold the general mills and made you know, a ton of bucks, started another company, raised money. So I'm just saying that whole system, that pipeline of like, you know, capital distribution in retailer consumer, building something and then being acquired by a major company. I think that's going to be different now in the era that we're, we're going into. And um, you should be looking to build a company to, you know, serve your customers and not, you know, not be acquired. And that's another thing too, when you're raising, when you're trying to build a company to be acquired, it's very different how you spend money because you're trying to scale. So you're trying to raise money for like sales and distribution and marketing and hiring, you know, growing your headcount, and you need to do it quickly. I think that's going to be different now. Like you need to, it's kind of more of a slow growth process and you need to be very intentional in who you're partnering with, with distribution, you know, because you want to have a values alignment. Um, so it's a huge opportunity, but as you and I have talked about, it's incredibly hard to do. And, you know, I know the guys at new founding are working on this. Um, you know, I talked to Matt the other day and, no, no, he's, uh, you know, Nate is, is really focused on, on this, but it's, it's, a, it's a long slog, guys. It's, 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 and it's kind of uncharted waters and how it's all going to work out. Yeah, I think it's very interesting to think about, you know, entering an era where it's not all about exit. It's not all about, yeah, sort of having this valuation on paper without ever making profit. <laughs> you right. know, like imagine everybody starts trying to make a profit again. That that alone would probably be healthy for for what we're doing. Um, so I know that you have background actually in CPG. Mm -hmm. Good. So what was your history with that? And um, did you see some of these forces at play when you had your own CPG brand? I mean, for me, my first job out of college was working for a major food company. They were based in Nebraska at the time. And 
I remember getting this job as it paid better than the other offer that I had as a business management major, which means you don't know what you want to do. So it's like, oh, I'll just be in business management, you know, I'll figure it out. And um, I remember, you know, my first few weeks after relocating from San Antonio to Las Vegas, because what this company would do is hire people right out of college because they were malleable and they were looking to bro- break away from expensive food brokers and hire direct sales reps, indoctrinate them with the ways of the company. And they'd have somebody that's cheaper and loyal. And so I was part of this wave of young, of of new hires. And I remember for the first couple of months, there was like no leadership, no direction, like nobody knew what was going on. And I'm just living out in Vegas and I got, you know, just, I'm like, what the hell do I do? Like, nobody knows what's going on. And I realized these companies have so much money. They can literally just kind of throw shit against the wall and see what'll stick. And it was kind of like, damn, you know, like I kind of want to earn my paycheck. Like, I want to get paid more to go out and perform, but that's not how this business is. It's more of about like account management and accounting and managing trade. And it's more of like almost bureaucratic in a sense. I was like, man, this isn't for me. So, you know, um, you know, long story short of it, I tried a couple of adventurous things, um, ended up getting recruited to work at Coca-Cola in, in late 2010. And it um, went to work at Coke and it was the best company I worked for, any large company. Now, I don't know what Coke is like today. Let me just be honest with you. But the time I worked there from 2010 to 2012, um, I really enjoyed the people. I thought it was a very meritocratic environment where people were really pushing themselves to perform. It was a diverse company, but it felt like a diversity through like meritocracy and achievement and people that were really all working on the same page. And I I had it, the, the prior large food company that I worked for was more about like a good old boys network where your ability to be promoted in the company was based on going to live at this particular city where the company was headquartered that was not a desirable place to live. So it's kind of like, you're gonna take one for the team, you know? <laughs> and at, at Coke, it was just, I really enjoyed it. Um, I got an idea during that time to go do a, a, a cocktail product where you could mix a shot of vodka or tequila into a juice mixer and you would shake it up and. That was very novel at the time and you know, raised a few million dollars, was able to get that through different iterations and prototyping, learned a lot about injection molding, blow molding, um, you know, rigid plastic packaging. You know, I lo- just learned a ton about that. Um, you know, it was a liquor application, obviously, which is one of the most controlled um, industries in America. I mean, liquor is just unbelievable. Um, and what you have to go through there from like taxation, regulation, where you can sell, where you can't sell. It's a lot of stuff. Um, but was able to get it into the world's the country's largest spirit distributor. Then I was able to get it to Walmart, um, you know, had, had funding, had a deal fall through in, um, in late 2019 and, you know, continue to look for money. And then, um, you know, COVID hit and I realized like, this is not going to be possible because, you know, venture capital and angel money really got cut in, you know, by 50, 60% within an almost a very short period of time. And people went from, like, hey, I'm going to look at investing in this angel business to where like, oh, my God, my stock portfolio is down by half. Like, hold the, like, stop everything. And so, like, everybody was in protection mode, in retrench mode. And so I started doing business consulting during that time. I had some people reach out to me that, um, you know, had some startup ideas or were in the early stages of a company that needed some help. And, you know, I had been, I'd been in this industry since I was 23 years old and I'd been an entrepreneur since I was a you know, 29, 30 years old as an entrepreneur. And so there's just a lot of experience there in understanding how things work and how you're supposed to raise money and how you put together a professional presentation and 
um, you know, how you go get distribution. And so I just really understood this thing from soup to nuts and, you know, was able to help other people out. So what was your role at Coke? I was a, I was a key account manager, like and had some national accounts well as, as well, where I would call on like Albertsons and HEB and Central Market. And, um, you know, basically I would go into, you know, I'd pitch the headquarter office and I would manage that business um, and also launch new products, line extensions, you know, uh, just it's, it's, you know, honestly, a lot of it is not even selling. It's more of relationship management and managing your trade dollars because when you're in the food and beverage business there's a thing called trade spend which is of every dollar you're going to spend maybe 10 15 cents of every dollar in basically buying sales buying distribution right and so maximizing that trade spend that's been allocated to you like let's say that if i'm managing 100 million dollars worth of accounts you know that's a big difference if i can you know, take the trade spin from 15% down to like 8%, you know? And so what can I do with this bucket of monies to drive the business? That's really what I was focused on. So what kind of distributors were you selling to? Uh, well, at Coca-Cola, it was self-distributed. So it was, you know, we had refrigerated trucks for Odwalla. Um, we were the only cold chain distributed product or cold chain distribution system in the Coca-Cola network. Um, you know, so the, you know, Odwalla was the juice that I sold. You had to be refrigerated at a, you know, it was at a short shelf life, had to be refrigerated, I think below, like, I forget what it was, like 38 degrees. And so if it, and if it got too high, then you would have spoils. So, um, it was self-distributed and sometimes we'd put other products on the truck like Zico or Honest Tea or Honest Kombucha. So that makes it easier. Um, whenever I went off and did my own thing, I had to go find a new distributor. I had to, it's a whole different distribution network. So a lot of the relationships don't carry over. They don't carry over at all. And so you have to go find distributors that are going to work with you. And that creates so many different complexities because as a startup product, you have to find somebody that's going to not only distribute your product, but pay you. And this is something that, you know, the liquor industry, people aren't aware of this. You know, you think of terms, like issuing terms with a distributor as like, let's say 30%, you know, um, net 30. And then maybe like, you know, you give somebody 2% if they can pay in 15 days. Like 2%, 15, net 20, net, net 30. In the liquor business, there is no terms. And it could go up to 90 days. So think about that. Like you're, you're, you're delivering a product to a distributor they're selling into a retailer and it could be up to 90 days before you receive payment. You know, if you're with a smaller or mid-sized distributor. So think of what that does to your cash flow. Like you're basically somebody else's bank, like you're funding their business. You know, like they're selling your product and getting paid and they continue to sell your product. And that's what you realize with some of the smaller guys. Um, now with Southern Glaciers, these guys were best in class and they, they paid within a, you know, within 30 days, no problem, you know, but that's part of the reason why you want to get in with those guys, because they not only have the distribution network, but they're going to pay you and allow you to operate your business the way that you should. Yeah. It's so great to have somebody like you on who understands creation of capital like this. Um, because the biggest question I get from anybody all the time is obviously about woke marketing and it's about, being inside these 
massive CPG brands, which generally this comes down to, uh, not even CPG, but just consumer goods. So right. Nike, Gillette, um, you know, th- these types of companies. And people are just so far away from the inner workings of these places. And they, they're just so curious, like, how does something like this actually happen? Like, isn't there people inside these companies that actually care about the people that buy the products? So it's good to have somebody yeah. like you here who's been inside. So you, you know what the inside of Coca-Cola is like. I mean, that's great. I, I think that that's really cool. No, I appreciate it. I mean, one of the things I was always really focused on was when you're out on the street and you're in sales or operations and you're like a route driver, those guys understand what's going on at the ground level better than anybody. Like they're interfacing with the the retailer as well as the customers. And then when you go back to the headquarter office and you see the people in the marketing department and you hear their ideas, there's this huge disconnect oftentimes. And like what the marketing people think is possible or like they, a lot of times they don't even really understand the consumer. That was something that really kind of struck me too. Is like, they don't really understand who their audience is. They're kind of guessing. And when you, and when that kind of thing, whenever you realize that's what's going on, it's like your days are numbered. I mean, by the way, Odwalla, which I love, I hold dear to my heart. It's a great company with a great brand ethos. has since been shut down because Coca-Cola didn't really, monitor it and love it and give it the kind of handheld and holding that it needed as that kind of brand. And eventually what happens is with these smaller brands in a large CPG company is that they kind of use the smaller brand as an incubator for rising talent within the organization. So this, you know, somebody over here is really rising quickly. And this is probably what happened over at, uh, at AB. You know, with this with this lady, I forget her name. Um, Hallie, I don't remember her name. Alyssa. Um, Alyssa, yeah, Alyssa. Alyssa Hainerschneid. Hainerschneid, yeah. Hainerschneid. What, what happened with <laughs> Alyssa? Yeah, what happened yeah. with Alyssa is she's somebody that has, like, the grooming and the education, and she's somebody that's been positioned for success. And they're looking for people like her in these organizations, like, this is somebody that is, you know, she has, like, the, the full um, you know, plethora of things that you're supposed to have. Like, she checks all of the boxes. Yeah, Curtis and, Yarvin calls that cursus signorum or cursus anorum. It's, a, like, pedigreed for the the marketplace. Now, by the way, I'll, I'll say, I'll, I bet you she's the, she feels like this job that she got isn't really what she wanted to do in life. That's another thing is that a lot of people in this CPG business wish they would have done something else and they kind of wind up in the business. Right. But like in her mind's eye, I bet she thought she was going to be somebody very different, but this is kind of what she's doing. And so what she wants to do is make her mark by changing up the brand and And, and, and trying to reconstitute it into something else. And it's like, yeah, because she has to go to dinner parties and they, everybody, it's, she's probably the bu- brunt, like, uh, brunt of everybody's joke, right? I mean, it's like every dinner party she yeah. goes to, they go, oh, Bud Light, you know, Alyssa, she's the, well, the big Bud Light yeah. gal, you know? Well, she probably wished she would have gotten into politics or some kind of social activism. Right. Yeah, yeah. And this is her way of manifesting that and making a difference is by taking a bold stand and turning yeah. Bud Light from the Joe six pack consumer 
to this new urbanite woke person that is not who the core audience is. And I don't think that they expected to get slapped down like that. And honestly, this whole thing with Bud Light was probably the most successful boycott of any product that we've seen from the American right. But it this wasn't a boycott. I, I don't like when people use this word boycott because this okay, wasn't take, a boycott. Use a different word. I don't care about the word. Yeah. Um, <laughs> let's say let's say pullback. Pullback. You know, it was really just reevaluation. A, yeah. 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 Right. It's just a decision. It's literally a, a momentary. It's a purchase decision. Like you know, you know the sales funnel where it's awareness, um, consideration, preference, conversion. Mm-hmm. This is totally a preference moment. Preference is measured by like when you're walking into the grocery store, this is a marketing thing. When you're walking into the grocery store, which are the brands that you are preferring to buy as you walk in? And that's part of your marketing funnel, right? This is totally a preference level issue, right? It's like, all it is, is you've knocked Bud Light off of the preference tree. Like some guy walking into the store, he has three brands in his mind, and now he only has two. Like, that's that's all that it really is. Well, think about this, too. I mean, it's not like Bud Light has won through superior flavor. Right. I mean, this is something that's really like they're, they're, the brand ethos has been built over time is kind of a working man's, um, yeah. you know, it's easy drinking beer. And there's there's a lot of options out there if that doesn't work. And so I think it shows the fragility of a brand and what can happen when you piss off your core audience. But right. th- but this was this was probably the greatest, um, you know, pushback, pullback, call it what you want, where the consumer just said, you know what, I ain't buying it. This is not for me. And them being able to rectify this is going to it's a long slog. It's not going to happen right away. They're going to have to do a lot to build back trust with that core audience. And the truth is they may not be able to. So how come that you're the perfect person to ask? Coke also, Coca-Cola also had one of these recently with the boardroom leak of like some executive was teaching people to be less white that caused an issue people were boycotting coca-cola but it didn't seem to have the same impact so why do you think that is i don't know the specifics of this so like you know something that just jumped at the top of my mind that could be the case is that i think you know both of these companies are having struggles in terms of Coca-Cola and AB, in terms of maintaining, they have huge amounts of market share. And I can speak you know, from experience that North America is not a growth place for Coca-Cola. I mean, people are moving away from soft drinks in general. And like emerging markets were really where they were focused for a while. And so people are just not drinking as much Coke and, you know, or carbonated beverages, let's say, you know, high fructose corn syrup or, you know, high calorie carbonated beverages. So people are moving away from that. Um, I don't really know other than, I mean, one thing also is that millennials and zoomers are not as brand loyal across the board as, um, as older generations. They're not really like they're willing to try new things, you know, like they don't need to um, drink the thing that their, that their father did or their mother did. They're willing to experiment, try new stuff. So um and I would also say this is that I think that, okay, I think the alcohol business is a little bit more legacy American in terms of the people that are in it and then, then it is the uh, non, you know, the non-alcohol side of things. 
because of Coke, there's definitely more of the, um, you know, wokest. There's definitely more of that going on. And it's more permissible than it is in alcohol. Like whenever you go to a conference that's in the alcohol business, it's a very like kind of alpha male mafioso type of thing and how it works because it's a, it's, it's a regulated drug and there's taxation involved. So when you have that element, there's a different kind of person that's going to go into the alcohol business versus the non-alcohol business where it's kind of a little bit more trendy, I guess. So I would say that those businesses that are like non-alcohol are probably a little bit further down the line, you know, in terms of like adopting woke values and trying to incorporate those in what we're doing versus the alcohol business. And I've seen this in the alcohol business too. Remember the Johnny Walker yeah. little clip that made its way on Twitter that was extremely yeah. provocative, yeah. you know? I mean, it was, it was pretty funny. I was like, this is crazy. I sent it out to people like, what the hell is going on? You know? <laughs> um, but it's like, that's a little bit less common than what you'll see in, uh, in non-alcohol. Okay. So it was, maybe it was just, I think it was just kind of a perfect storm thing. Like, I, I think it was also the, I think the consumer, it took a while for the message to get to the consumer, right? Mm-hmm. Like, <clears throat> because they do such a good job clogging every single mainstream channel that it, it's taken a long time for like the actual working class people that drink the stuff or that buy the stuff. It's taken them a long time to, for the message that this is happening to get to them. Right. Like, so I I think they needed to be hit with it. Like it's an effective frequency thing. I think they probably got like hit with it four times before and they're like, "Uh, what? why should I be paying attention to this? And Mm -hmm. then the Bud Light one was just like the seventh time or whatever. And they were like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Fuck Bud Light. (laughs) Like, yeah, I don't, I don't want this at all. Right. Yeah. Well, there's also, I mean, in terms of the Bud Light, there's a lot, that woman, and the way she went about things and all of the media that she had done and the things that she said and like pictures from her back in college, there was just a, a, a body of work that worked against her. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. You know, I don't know what happened in the Coke situation, but people look at this woman and they hear what she's saying. And they're like, I know this type and I don't like it. Yeah. And, and that's part of the, and that's part of the issue. Now, She's on a leave of absence. I don't know what's going to happen with her. I mean, I would assume she's going to get taken care of with severance or be a reason. What will probably end up happening, I would think, is she'll leave the company. She'll be taken care of financially. And then she'll get a job at something that's closer to like what she really wants to do, which is like social justice within consumer brands. Right. You know, yeah. But will she get another shot at like a Fortune 100 company or a major company in this space? Mm, I kind of doubt it. She'll move to the DIB uh, section, which is now what they call it. Um, the DEI is now DIB. Okay. I didn't even know that. I was like, yeah. <laughs> it's belonging. It, it's now it's now diversity it's, inclusion it's belonging. belonging. Yes, yeah. you have to be belong. Yeah. Uh, okay, so in, in our last little bit of time here, um, the tribe that you're building. Maybe we can return to this. So, yeah. so. Uh, you recently had a meetup in Miami. How did that go? It was amazing. Um, I, I was, I knew it was going to go well because I've gotten to know these guys over the course of weeks and months. And some of them I've even known for a couple of years. And I think it was just a, I think it's what Twitter should be used for. 
Twitter's an incredible networking tool. Like, although sometimes we don't like certain elements about it, things that get boosted and the conversation gets repetitive, Twitter has helped me find people that you know, are closer to my way of thinking than a lot of my historical friends or even family members are. And so what it's done is it's allowed me to, to find these folks and save my friends and family from having these conversations. <laughs> yes. Like it's actually for their good too, you know? And so um, it's something where I started a group chat, I don't know, seven, eight months ago was kind of a lark because I saw the changes in Twitter and thought, well, you know, I don't want to lose my friends. Well, let's just put everybody in one pool here together. And so we, you know, built that group up and, you know, it was generally pretty good. But eventually I'm like, you know, I'm spending a lot of time in this group managing everybody and bringing new people in and recruiting. I should get paid a little something for it. And so we cha- we moved to a paid group um, a few months ago and it eliminated a lot of the unserious people and a lot of the conversations that were non-productive. And I'm not going to go into details of what they are, but like the common themes on right-wing Twitter, just gone, you know? And so we were able to, t- we talk about the classics, different languages, you know, philosophy, history, societal trends, um, sports, relationships, um, just all kinds of things. And we've really got a powerful group of guys or like, again, about 50 members so far. And I'd like to do more to market it, but I don't know if it's going to help that much because we're really going after a certain kind of guy that's probably, you know, top two or 3% in terms of intellect and certain things he wants to talk about. So the next thing was, okay, it's great. We're all here together. You've got some skin in the game. You're paying a little bit of money to be here. Let's do calls every other week. And so we do a call. We have a business group and we have a main group. And so we're doing a call every week, you know, anywhere from like five, six, seven, eight guys. Um, and then I'm like, okay, we got to meet in person because if you're not meeting in person, then you don't really know what you have. And so, and that was always the goal, but it was just more of like me setting a date and saying, okay, we're doing it in Miami. Here's when we're doing it. You've got to, you know, here's all the, here are the requirements and I'm going to make it easy for you in terms of looking at Airbnbs that can accommodate multiple people and like arranging for transport and like making just easy for getting a, getting a boat. You know, we had a yacht, we had an 80 foot azimuth. A friend of mine owns and he let us use the boat for like four or five hours at a very oh, low heck. fee. And like people were blown away by how badass this boat was. Did you get any and girls so, on the yacht? We had some, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like we didn't, I mean, and I told the guys, I said, listen, you can bring your girl if you want. Like, this is not going to be like, we've had enough of each other over the course of two and a half days. I think everybody knows where they stand. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so we went out on the boat. The night before we had actually had, I gave a presentation on what I want to do with the group. Um, we had uh, James Kirkpatrick of V-Dare um, give a really oh, cool. nice presentation about the value of tribes. And he actually was dressed like in a suit with like a, you know, what do you call it? Little pocket square. I mean, and he gave like a true, like no notes, no deck, just from the heart. Oh, wow. And it was and it was really nice. It was really a wonderful thing. And then we had another group member, Physiognomy Dan, who does physiognomy assessments. Um, yeah, I've seen him. I've seen him. Yeah, and, and he gave a great speech about his dream of starting up a school for talented young men that are intellectually gifted and how a lot of these young men today are kind of falling through the cracks. And we seem to be in a society where, you know, people are picked more on their like political affiliation or ideology or their identity then, um, you know, really prioritizing people that have true capability. And that's going to make society weaker across the board. And so 
he went into a really nice presentation. We had great question and answers. So it was something that was like fraternal. It was fun. It was a, this a club of guys that are really committed to doing something together. And a lot of people, like you don't always know what's going to happen. You know, when you put up, you know, 15, 20 guys in a room, um, you know, people form cliques and associations. But I would say like everybody got along, you know, had a great time, was relaxed. It felt very special. And, you know, most people are using their their real name. And, you know, we've had maybe a few guys that are anonymous. Of course, they share their real name when they're with all the guys. We played golf. You know, we had one guy come in from um, up the road from Fort Wayne, Fort Myers. That this kid can play golf. Like, I can play golf, okay? Like, I'm, I can whip some ass. This kid beat me by one, and he really – I mean, I was impressed. And he's part of our group. So, there's a lot of um, – different skills and talents that people bring to the table. And I think that makes us very strong as a group. It's not, there's not like we see the world similarly, but it's not monolithic and it's not like just one type of person. So that was our first meetup. And now we're going to look at doing um, another one, probably not, we're not going to do it quarterly, but probably three times a year. And I think Miami would be a really good home base for this because Miami is really attracting a certain kind of person like energetically. And I think Miami is, it's a beautiful place. Um, It's got diversity, but the diversity is like, there's a lot of people that are running from something or should I say running to Miami to get away from something else, whether it's, you know, Venezuela or Argentina (laughs) or Cuba, there's the Cuban community is just incredibly strong here. You know, there's a Maronite community, Lebanese Maronites are here, which we have a great church we go to. Um, we've got a strong Jewish community, of course. We've got, you know, Russians and Ukrainians. We have, I would say, people that are kind of almost persecuted minorities that have collected in Miami. And so there's a different way of going about things that makes it really powerful. And I think that the guys that came here really saw that. And this is going to be a place that we can really build something special. Yeah, you know, it's like I've lived all over the country and I've spent a shockingly little amount of time in Miami. Um, I've been a few times and I've been to the Keys a bunch of times for some reason or another, but um, it really has a South American vibe or European vibe in the sense that you don't get that racial resentment. That's just not there at all. You know, people just don't have that. And in like Chicago, where I'm from, everywhere else, that's especially now because we've been being whipped into a frenzy by the media, that all that is like really strong. Whereas you go to Miami and you immediately feel like there's no risk. You know, like it's like nobody's like looking at you. You're not like a white guy, you know, like doing bad things. Like you immediately are just like, oh, well, I could be anything. I could be Brazilian. You don't have no, nobody has any idea really like what you are. So there's not like that chargedness that you have everywhere else where now in the, you know, age of the intersectionality square, we're supposed to constantly be having this weight on our shoulders of, oh, I'm a white guy. You know, I can't go to this part of town because I'm going to get beat up or I can't go to that part of town because I'm gentrifying or, you know, whatever it is. Right. Um, And so that was really, really refreshing. And then also just there was just an overwhelming feeling of and I don't know if this is the South American thing or just the based thing, but like 
it was like people are like talking to each other, you know, like they're, they're meeting each other. They want to talk. Like if you're just sitting in a place, somebody's going to like walk up to you and like start a conversation with you, you know, which was just such a great feeling. Like that's how I remember the night I moved to New York city. I moved to New York city right after college, 2007. And my mattress was on the floor. I had an apartment in the West village and I just was filled with this overwhelming feeling of just possibility. Like I could do anything, you know, I was, you know, I was, I was broke. I had no money. I was 23. And, but I was just like, man, this is like, this is why people move here. They move here because it's yeah. just this feeling of anything can happen. Right. Um, that is how Miami feels to me now. Like you get there and it's just like, damn, like this is a land of possibility. Like you really can do shit here. Whereas everywhere else, I mean, it's weird because the cities are still kind of hanging on a little bit. Like, you know, New York's actually kind of having a moment right now as, as weird as this to say, because of dime square and you know, everything that's happening there. But, uh, I haven't felt that feeling like that's why people move to cities is that feeling of response of possibility. That's the whole reason why. Whereas most other places that's pretty dwindling. It's like at an all time low. Whereas in Miami, it just seems like it is totally there. Yeah, I agree. And I've met um, people from, from New York, but also people from the Bay area. Like for whatever reason, I've run into a number of people from San Francisco that love San Francisco. And whenever COVID hit, they realized something had changed permanently. And we yeah. even have some guys, we even have a guy or two in our group, one guy in our group that's like your classic urbanite from like Northern California. Like this guy is just, you know, he studied the classics at Berkeley. He's a very smart guy, great writer. And really just one of these guys, it's like he's an urbanite, but he's a guy that goes out and drinks and meets girls and has a good time. And he's, he's smart, smart, he's a, smart as a whip. And he, he just realized it was over. You know, his, he grew up in like Oakland and, you know, his parents still have a house there. But he just realized this is it. I can't, I'm not going to have this anymore. He left, but there's people that are in tech that moved here in Miami. And so Miami is, I, I was wondering for a bit, is this the city of the moment or is this long-term? I think it's long-term at least for the next 10 or 15 years that it's going to attract a lot of people that really want to do shit, want to make things happen. And I haven't, you know, really felt this way in a long time. I remember, you know, feeling this way about Austin a little bit. Yeah. Like in in the late 2000s, you know, Austin had a lot of, now I think Austin, when I go there, it's like, I don't see that anymore. Yeah. Um, Austin feels like it's been too, everybody you meet in Austin just moved there. Like every person you meet is like, I've been here for six months. I've been here for, everybody's just there and they're not really there like for the right reasons. You know, it's like they're there there because like they were going to bring their dumbass ideology to <laughs> so obvious. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I think, I think here's the thing, like you want that creative class of young people that want to be socially upwardly mobile. Like they want to make money. They want to work really, really hard. And you want to find a way to bring that energy to a city. Like I lived in LA for a couple of years. I remember when LA used to be like that. When I went back a few years, now here's the thing. LA is going to be LA. It's going to have people building, you know, multi $10 million mansions in the Hollywood Hills because it's prime real estate. But can you move there as a person that's like 22, 23 years old and feel like, Hey, I can do it here. I can absorb. Things are expensive. I can absorb it. I don't know if that's still possible. I really question it. And I feel like Miami is a place where at least people think they have a chance here. Oh, totally. I I think, I mean, 
the cities of the next decade at least will be Austin and Miami, unquestionably. I mean, you go to Austin. I was just there for South by Southwest. It's like, it is insane. Like, that place is like, it's like there is now a barbecue, a cute barbecue joint that is like perfectly designed, looks like something out of a catalog <laughs> on every single corner. Like the entire air just smells like barbecue because there's a million, now there's like a thousand barbecue places. It's like Austin is playing itself so hard, you know? Whereas well, they, Miami they, to me really yeah. does feel like, uh, <clears throat> it's not like trying to be Miami, you know, it's not, it's not like you go down there and there's like, Oh, there's a Cuban, like, look, there's a, you know, a, a Cuban sandwich shop on every corner. Like, no, people are going there no. to like be there, not to like LARP as like, I am living Texas now, you know, which is this really irritating class of people. And hopefully the fact that now Miami turned red, you know, it's, it's great. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I, I'm, I'm planning on being here for a while and I think we can really build something special here. And I would just encourage people to come visit, you know, and here's the thing. Miami is different from the rest of South Florida, but South Florida itself is very strong. You know, yeah. like you know, Fort Lauderdale is cool. You know, Hollywood has seen a lot of growth. Um, Hallandale. I mean, there, there's just a lot, you know, here, um, you know, even up to West Palm, and there's, there's it, it, the whole area is growing like crazy. And, you know, one of the things we're looking at doing is getting a piece of real estate, probably like a house or maybe like a duplex townhome where we can use as a headquarter for the group, but also potentially have as a, as a rental property. And, um, you know, we know that, you know, the consensus is over the next 20 years, this place is going to four or five X. Like it's just, it's, it's going to happen. Um, and if you look over the last year, uh, Miami has been, the um, uh, greatest appreciation in price of any market over the last 12 months. It's like something like six and a half percent over any other market. Now you could say, well, that's not really optimal for, you know, well, it depends <coughs> on what you want to do, Isaac. Now, when you look at what property, people think, oh, Southern California is too expensive. Which market do you think has seen the most price appreciation over the last few decades? It's like Southern California. It's like New York. I mean, the gateway markets may not be managed properly, but there's something special about them that's going to continue to hold value because everybody wants to move there. And it's not just Americans, it's people all over the world. People all over the world want to move to Miami. They want to move to Southern Cal. They want to move to New York. So you've got a global market there that if you're able to buy into those places, you're going to see something really good, you know, in terms of your, it's going to be, it'll, it'll be a worthwhile investment. Awesome, dude. Well, thank you so much for joining. I, I got to, unfortunately, I got to go now. But, um, dude, I really appreciate this. We'll put links to everything that you're doing in the comments. And, yeah, man, I'll be seeing you in Miami soon because I'm trying to I'm trying to make that well, happen sooner than We'd love to have you here to visit or stay permanently. And it's good, yeah. to, uh, it's good to talk to you, man. I appreciate everything you're doing. And we want to support you any way that we can over here. Totally, man. All right. See ya. See you, brother. Take care. Bye-bye. Oh.